happy Monday. McCallum, Shannon with you on the uh, program, um, the podcast, and on Sirius Channel 167. I don't know whether our guest today was the um, most sought-after available head coach in the National Hockey League, but it sure didn't take him very long to find a new job. Well, it, in fact, Bob, I don't think he was. Um, but we actually interviewed last week the guy who was the most sought after, and he decided not to get a job. <laughs> Trots. Yeah. And but 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 then but there's no question that uh, that Bruce Cassidy was someone who uh, I'm sure other teams said, well, if he ever becomes available, we're going to make a phone call. I don't remember. Did Trotz tell us whether he talked to Vegas at all? No, he wouldn't. He he would not tell us any teams other than Winnipeg. Uh, but I do know that he had extensive talks with uh, a few teams, including Florida. Um, I think he was in Philadelphia as well. Uh, and uh, I do believe there was some discussion uh, with the Golden Knights at some point. Because mm. he remember he was he was available, gosh, what f- th- four weeks earlier than uh, than Cassidy was. Well, that's who we talked to today, the uh, new head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights, Bruce Cassidy. We'll do that after these messages. McCallum and Shannon back uh, with you. We are uh, joined today by the. Well, I guess you can still say new John, can you? Well, I hasn't uh, coached I, I, a game yet. No, I wonder if he's cashed a check, though. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing that's the case. The new head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights, Bruce Cassidy, is with us. A reunion of sorts um, with uh, George McPhee uh, from, what, 20 years ago now? Boy, that's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, time flies. Uh, yeah, always uh, appreciated. George gave me my first job in the NHL in Washington. Yep. Um, always appreciative of that. Learned a lot between now and then. I, I, uh, I think so. It's good to be back working with them. Yeah, no, there, there is some irony, though, I think, Bruce, when you consider that between your first job in the NHL and your second job in the NHL spans, you know, a decade and a bit. <laughs> and then your second job to your third job was days. Quite a difference. Yeah. Uh, the first one. You know, obviously in Washington, I was a young guy, had a lot to learn, didn't go as well as I'd like. Took a lot from it, though. Um, and then had to get back to work, different levels, just the way it works out sometimes. You never know if you're going to get a second chance, right? In this business, there's a lot of guys like me that are waiting for their second one. But when I did get it, I was ready. I'll say that, John, and had a good good situation in Boston, real solid group there. So uh, this one, uh, you know, you start building your resume, I guess, and and uh, you get you get fired. It's never uh, a good thing. You're sort of licking your wounds and then all of a sudden you're right back at it. So this one was a, uh, was a, obviously a much quicker recovery and a, a real good landing spot. How strange was it to be on the draft floor and not be at the Bruin table? Yeah, that was different. Uh, I mean, I stayed up top. We didn't have a first round pick, but still wandering around just, uh, uh, you know, seeing some of the guys. So, but I'll get used to it. You're, you're 14 years, you know, between Providence and Boston. That's a lot of black and gold. So uh, a little bit different. <clears throat> Well, you're sort of still in black and gold, but a different kind of black and gold. Um, let's talk about that, the situation in Boston. I, I was trying to think, and John would be better at this. Well, both of you are probably better at this than me, but I was trying to think of a more surprising um, firing of a, of a head coach than yours. Uh, I certainly 
was shocked by it. Um, I suspect you were too. Or did you? Was there something going on at the end of the regular season last year or during the playoffs that led you to believe that might happen? Uh, no, I think everyone had their end-of-the-year presser, myself, Donnie, uh, Cam Neely. I'd met with Donnie shortly after that, and we were preparing for the next year, you know, discussing our staff, et cetera. And then it got quiet for a couple of weeks. They, um, you know, down in Toronto, your way, the, uh, uh, what do you call it there, the prospects were meeting, right, to do the mm -hmm. testing and, and such. And so I don't know, they, they probably met with ownership in Buffalo. They usually do at the end of the year. Maybe they just had a different plan. And then it... Uh, so it was surprising in terms of the timing. I thought if it was going to happen, it would happen at the end, right away at the end of the year, but uh, it took a little time. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot, but there were stories that came out that suggested that the players, your players in Boston had something to do with it. Did you, did tell me about your relationship? I mean, you, you, your reputation is that you're a pretty tough coach, but you had success with these guys. Do you think the players had a grudge? Uh, I'm sure there's always a few players that aren't happy um, for different reasons. I think if you look at our record, uh, I mean, I was I was paid to have success with the team, get wins. We did that. Did we upset some people along the way? Uh, I don't know. Challenge some people to, to be better. Yes. Uh, I don't think the team ever quit on, on the staff at all. Myself, um, right to the final end. We lost in game seven against a real good team. Um, so I'm sure there was player feedback. There always is, Bob, at the end of the year meetings, right, with the GMs and stuff. So maybe there was some some stuff there. Donnie just told me they wanted a new voice. I didn't get too much into it with him. Um, you know, I, I respect what he has to say. He's, we've been together 14 years. It's some of the messaging he said, should, you know, I should try to change. I'm a little bit blunt at times or, or too direct uh, for certain guys, but I don't know. I got along well with most of the players. I have good relationships with some of them have been around a long time, uh, obviously, because I had some of them in Providence, like Marshy and Rask and still with Krug and some of the newer guys as well. McAvoy, Pasta, they're young guys. So I was proud of my record with young guys uh, there. But, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes you hear things as well. But I, I thought our relationship was fine. Uh, as I said, better with some than others. And I think that's not atypical for most coaches around the league. Bruce, yeah. is it is it easier to uh, continue communication with guys you did have in the minors when yeah. you become an NHLer, and and how and how does how do you translate that to guys that are, are you only have when they're with the the big league team? Yeah, I think what happens is like when I took over, for example, some of the guys that had Krug, Rask, Marshy, Kevin Miller, McQuaid at lower levels, they were like, listen, he's going to challenge you. Uh, you know, he's going to want to get the best out of you, but he cares about you, so. You know, just listen to the message, you know, and, and, and take it, uh, you know, for what it's worth. So I think that's definitely easier. They've seen some of that side, uh, whereas new guys, it might take them a while. And it did for some of them. Some of them go, wow, you know, this guy, you know, he wants it right now and um, expects, you know, a standard right away. And he's not going to let it slip. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. I just think the players are different now and you do have to be careful how you message. But at the end of the day, you do have to hold guys accountable or, you know, I don't think you have much of a team. So, yes, it's easier with guys that have sort of senior coaching style than those that have. I'm just I'm also curious that uh, uh, how you had changed from the first day you were the Bruin coach to the last day you were the Bruin coach. How did you evolve? Well, I, I think what happens there is the expectation is, is Stanley Cup every year. It's that type of market. It's about championships. It's the way it is for the Red Sox, the Pats, Celtics. So I think you, you learn that in a hurry. So I don't know if there was a lot of change there other than I think as you go along, you realize it's not it's not that easy to win. There's 31 teams that don't every year. Um, so you, you can't let it 
consume you, I guess, so to speak, that you're not going to get there every year. We came the closest, obviously, in 19. I think that one still hurts. Right. Um, but how did I change? I think just you get a little bit um, worn down because of those those expectations after a while. If you don't think you're meeting them, I think that's human nature. So I'd say that that's something that certainly can get you in that type of market. We've uh, we've had uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've had Paul Maurice on. We've had Barry Trotz on. We've had a few guys uh, that have uh, went through whatever bubbles there were. Um, and, and, and people pinpoint how difficult the bubbles were and how, they're, how things changed after the bubble. Was, was that the same with you? Yeah, I mean, the bubble is tough. And depending on your personality, I mean, sometimes you just play the hand you're dealt and you got to make the best of it. So that's the way I approached it in Toronto. Well, for us, we, we had a, a, a nice spot. So I uh, got to know, you look at it, we got to know the staff a lot better. Cam was there, Donnie, you know, some of the other, I got to know Coop a lot better there because Tampa was in there and some coaches in the, in the league. So there's always something you can take from it. But I think it is difficult on the players. They need their space. Um, coaches are used to being in early huddling up. So we're kind of used to a little bit that environment. You do miss your family, have young kids. So uh, and then when you come out, um, you're, you're, you're trying to go back to where you were two or three years ago. And that's not always easy. <clears throat> I earlier mentioned um, the surprise that I had, and I think John had in most of the hockey world, of your dismissal yeah. in Boston. Um, what was maybe equally surprising was the the quick turnaround and the decision to go to Vegas. And I think you were quoted as saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that it was a no-brainer. Tell us about the conversations, and, and um, were you shocked that Vegas not only approached you, but clearly made it clear that they wanted you to go there. Um, well, I'd never been through this process. When I got the job in Boston, it happened quick. They let Claude go mid-season. So you're not really interviewing. You're just, here, here's your team. Yeah. Um, you know, let's go. So this one was, you know, I didn't think it would happen this quick. As I said, I never been, it was very flattering. There's a number of teams that called. I don't want to get into every one, but and it went through a number of interviews, but Vegas was the one that came the hardest, so to speak, um, in terms of, you know, their process and talking about their team, where they're going, what they had to do to win, et cetera. So it happened quick. So it just seemed to be a natural connection with, with Kelly McCrim. And then you meet Bill Foley and I, I knew George. So things just happened very quickly. Talked to my family about it. I never coached out West. I've been an East Coast guy my, my whole life. My wife's from Jersey. So I thought it'd be a great, great opportunity to, to go to the Western Conference. Um, and just the way the team set up, the brand they've built here already is, is unbelievable. I'm out here now for the Belton camp. You can see it in the area. I mean, they've only been in, in existence for six years. So, I mean, I, I just thought it was a real special place. And if you could win the first cup ever here, it'd be quite an accomplishment. That's kind of how I approached it a little bit. And they've been close. So uh, they obviously put the resources into it and they've, they've got the people here to do it. So and I know had to convince your wife though, huh? <laughs> no, she loves moving to Vegas. <laughs> Say again. She loves the heat, so she's ready to go. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, but what, are you, but, but what are you gonna What are you gonna do with the house in Cape Cod? What's gonna We're happen? That one. That one stays. That's our summer retreat. The kids <laughs> love it there. A place you can always go. So that one. Uh, that's going nowhere. Yeah. So it, it, have you been there? It's a beautiful over there. That's, oh yeah. Like yes. Yeah. June, July, August. It's an unbelievable spot. Yeah, well, that's it's 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 a, it's a secret, but not really a secret type thing. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. Everybody seems to know about it, but. Uh, the people that people that do buy spots there, they never sell them. 
and they always go back. It's, it's fascinating. I, I'm I'm curious. I know I don't want to get into details of whether other what the other teams were, but how quickly did the phone ring? Uh, well, the, I mean, they put it out at seven o'clock at night, and I had some uh, interviews lined up that night and the next day, so it was fairly quick. Wow. So that you know, an agent. My agent, uh, Francois, put out an email and some teams responded. So that's what I'm telling you. It was really almost surreal, right? Because you're really consoling your children, like, what's next? What do we do? And, and then all of a sudden you're in preparation mode to speak with NHL GMs, which to me, I'm a hockey guy that loves to talk hockey. So it was fascinating for me, no matter whether I was their first candidate or their 10th, right? I don't like I don't know where they were, but just to, to get to know people like that and talk to the, the you know, accomplished NHL people. I, I, I love that process and it ended up landing in Vegas. And like I said, they were, we were discussing quite a bit uh, in a hurry, but um, that's how it played out. So you, you, you talk about your family because you're resilient. You're a professional, you were a professional player. You've been through this your whole life, but you're, you're dragging your wife and you're dragging your kids along on this journey and they get fired too. Yeah. It's, it's hard on them too. But to to be able to turn around in a couple of hours and say, don't worry, folks, we're going to be fine, must have been a huge relief. Well, even at first, you know, I had another year left. So, you know, financially, you, you know, you have something to fall back on. And, and the worst is, is when you're looking for a job when you don't have one. I've been there and, and people are calling me after that for assistant positions. I really, that's the tough, tough part of the business. At least we had something to fall back on, but it was going to be a move, a, a true relocation for the kids, right? And that's the, the tough part. They've got their friends at that age, but I, I think it's good. They're, they'll be resilient. It'll they'll benefit them down the road. But, you know, that is the tough part of our business. You are moving your entire family. And some people don't, right? Because of the, the ages of the kids and they have to go without seeing them, which I think is something people don't realize that in this profession it can be real difficult on families, but um, you know, you're paid well when you're, you are working and, and you've got to take advantage of those situations. What are you doing with your staff? Uh, we hired John Stevens, um, real solid hockey guy. I wanted a guy that was a head coach, preferably in the NHL, uh, run the D, run the PK that I knew could, could handle it. Um, and cause we had a couple of younger guys that are staying, Ryan Craig, who's been here and uh, Mish. Misha Donskoff, who's been upstairs. So we're going to retain two of the previous assistants. I think feedback from the players was outstanding for those two guys. So it's like, you know what, let's go to work with them. I didn't know any of those three guys very well, just, you know, through the business. Um, but a lot of respect for all of them. So that's what we're going to do. Sean Burke uh, came on as the goaltender coach as well. Um, so we've got guys that have not all necessarily worked together, but know each other through the profession, uh, you know, the industry and, and off we go. And how, how well did you know Kelly before this? You know, I mean, we know, you know, George, but I don't know Kelly. Kelly. I, didn't, I didn't know Kelly at all. I'd never met him. And Brand so, new. so how, how, how was, how have you started to build a relationship with him? Uh, I think it started during the interview process. And that's one of the reasons I, mean, I used the, the word no brainer. wasn't trying to be disrespectful to any of the other teams, but it just seemed to be a really good fit for me from from day one. And and I think with Kelly, we spoke almost daily. Not spoke, but text. You know, whatever text or, or call. And, and I just thought the ball was rolling right away in terms of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. So sometimes you connect right away, and that, that seemed to be the, the case with Kelly. <clears throat> with Bruce Cassidy, the head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, you, so generally speaking, it's the general manager that does the interview process. But uh, and you were obviously talking to Kelly. But did you talk to George as well during that 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 period where you were thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. The first interview was with Kelly and George, um, and then there was a couple conversations more with Kelly, but the odd one with George. Um, 
I didn't want to, you know, you're trying to figure out the hierarchy structure. I didn't want to, you know, go over Kelly to, to, to talk to George. George was of more about stuff we'd said during the interview. And I was like, George, you know, what about this? Should I keep this to, 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 to ourselves? Or, you know what I mean? It was more, wasn't, you know, digging around trying to get information. Mm-hmm. It was just some sort of uh, protocol questions, I guess, more for George because I had a comfort level with <clears throat> So it's been a, been a while now, um, well, a few weeks anyway, a couple of weeks. Um, have you found a house? Are you looking around? Do you know where in the city you're going to be? Yeah, the majority of the, all the team pretty much lives in Summerlin. Uh, I yeah. wasn't that familiar with Vegas at all. We'd go in into the strip, right? You, you have dinner and you play and you leave. So um, all the, from the owner to the skate sharpener, they all live out here. So there's just you know different pockets of areas. So that's what we're going to do. The kids are enrolled in school. We got that settled which is, you know, a relief. They start earlier out here, middle of August. So I uh, looked at some houses yesterday. We'll pin one down. Um, you know, there's some good options here. So to me, it was more about the kid, the kids. So get them on a hockey team, get them on a baseball team, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. And we'll, we'll find yeah. it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I lived there for a number of years and uh, I talked to McPhee after he took the job there. And I may be responsible for directing him to Summerlin because that's where I lived. And as you know, no, I guess the arenas, the practice arena is out there now too. And I, and you're right. I guess just about everybody in the organization lives out there. Yeah. Maybe George got it rolling. I don't know. And we'll, we'll credit you because it seems like a nice, very nice community. Lots of restaurants, shops, uh, obviously golf courses, but just, you know, it seems like a great spot. Well, it, it, it is too. Yeah, it just, um, you know, after being with the Bruins so long, when did you stop thinking Bruin style or do you? Or how, or, and how do you morph out of that? I don't think I have in terms of the, some of the culture we want to, that, that I would like to build or keep going here. I mean, it's unfair for me to say until we get in that locker room with the group. Uh, I think this was a hard work at team that first year, the misfits, as they call them, that just outwork teams. And, and they've done that for a number of years, got away from that a little bit through injuries last year and maybe young kids coming up. So they lack that identity to do that. I'm not sure. I wasn't here, but that part we're going to take with us, you know, the team first team toughness um, and then use the culture they've created. I mean, they've done a pretty good job. If you think about five years being to the finals and two conference finals, I mean, that's, that's a lot of success for, a, for a team. So we don't want to get away from that. And I think Bill Foley's done a great job just walking around, you know, their whole uh, complex here and, and just, you know, people being proud of the night. Like I said that earlier, I think they branded themselves as well as anybody for a team being in the league only a short period of time. And it really shows here, but even back in new England, you know, you, you know who the Vegas Golden Knights are. So I think they've done an incredible job with it. Do you, do you envision a difference coaching in the Western conference than the Eastern conference? I don't in terms of playing the game. Um, I know the practice time is limited because of the travel. So, you're, you know, what you, with a new coach, you've got to get things in place in a hurry. I, I do believe that in the West more than the East, because you'll have less time to work on it. So that's something that's real important to us that we've started talking about, you know, implementing a few new systems because we're going to change some things that we got to be dead on in training camp and use that better than maybe uh, just going back to, you know, sort of get ready, so to speak, and fine tune things. We got to, we got to make sure that we use our time very efficiently. That's the one thing I'll say right out of the gate that we are prepared for. How, how closely have you looked at the roster? Uh, really closely now because free agency started, right? right. Before we were going through it, but there was some, 
you know, everything was in pencil. Now, now it's getting a little more in pen. Obviously, Pacioretty got dealt yesterday with Coughlin and Young D. That, that hurts the organization, unfortunately. But uh, they knew they had to make some moves. Dadnoff was a little bit earlier to, to get compliance. So now we can start digging in a little more. Uh, there's a few more restricted guys I know that Kelly has to get signed. I assume I don't want to speak out of turn that, that those will get done. We'll see down the road here. And then you can sort of really start pinpointing uh, you know, lines and combos. But I've talked to every player here, sort of got a feel for where they were at in terms of their chemistry. So I think we started that process as well as, you know, pinning down, you know, how we're, who's going to play with who. Bruce Cassidy is with us. We'll take a quick break. Come back with uh, more. Back after this. Bob McCown is John Shannon and Bruce Cassidy, the new head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights, is with us from Las Vegas, where I gather it's probably in the 40s. And you're probably anxious to get to uh, that, that's Cup. the hundred. That's the hundreds. I was going to say I've been. I'm an Ottawa kid, so I know what the forties are. But I'm doing a quick translation. <laughs> if, if, it, if it means about 108, you're right on, Bob. Yeah. Well, I know. I mean, I, I I I can remember days where I'd wake up in the morning at 6 a.m. and I'd look at, at I go to the corner store to get a coffee, and if it was <laughs> under a hundred at 6 a.m., I thought, oh, it's going to be okay today. Yeah. Yeah. So. You're in. You're in for something um, completely different. But most of the players, I would think, as a result of that, have gone somewhere else. Um, even though they live in Vegas, they have family elsewhere or um, cottages or something. Have yeah, you met with very many? Yeah, most of them ha- have have gone. But there are some, full, you know, guys that are around here with the kids. And school starts earlier here. It's the first or second yeah. week of August. So I have met some of them here. Probably half a dozen. Uh, I met Jack Eichel in uh, actually Cape Cod. He was there for a wedding on his way. He's a Massachusetts guy. So, but I'll, I'll bump into most of them here shortly because it's the ones that have school are back uh, August 1st ish. And then uh, so am I because of school right after that and uh, connected with all of them on the phone. So, and then we have development camp this week. So they've tried to sort of work around the, the younger kids as well. So the, the, a lot of them are coming and going, but couple of guys get married so it's it's hit or miss right now so eichel's an interesting one for you because you would have seen him play in college hockey in 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 the boston area before he got drafted by the sabers um what what what's his limit what can he be for your team i don't know if he has one to be honest with you i mean he's he's a young guy that was in an environment where a lot was expected of him and probably uh, asked to do too much uh, at times and now he's coming into an environment where he is the, the highest paid player in the team. So there are going to be those expectations. And, and our job, I think, as coaches is, is, is getting him to play within the structure, but still be that dominant player without trying to do too much. So it takes away from other parts of his games. And I, I've told him that flat out that he's going to be a piece, he's got to be an important piece, but he's not the only piece here. And, and learn to use the people around you um, and, and accept some nights that, the game's not always going to go your way, but you can still help us win by maybe not being the leading scorer that night, but doing some other things. So that'll be the challenge for Jack. You bring up a, a really good point because th- there was so much of leadership expected of Eichel and Buffalo. And when you look at your squad, you, all you have is leaders. When you think of Stone and Petrangelo and Martinez, I mean, you've got a bunch of guys that can carry that load and it's always not on, on Jack's back, is it? Well, right away, exactly. You're taking something off his plate. Like he can still lead in his own way, but he doesn't have to wake up every morning thinking about, okay, what have I got to do for the good of the Buffalo Sabres in that locker room today? You know, it should just happen organically for him here because he's got other guys around him and and learn from them as well. Let's, he's young. It's a lot to ask 
to put it on a young player's plate and go out and be the best player and be the face of the franchise. And I think at the end of the day in Buffalo, it was a big ask and he won't have that. So when you talk to Alex Petrangelo, uh, how much of 2019 came up? (laughs) Not much. Uh, (laughs) Goal number two that basically put a, 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 I I can't say it put a fork in us, right? Because it's two nothing late in the first period. You got lots of time, but that won't, that one hurt. I reminded of that and moved on. So good for him. He got the, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the victory in, 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 on our ice. And uh, hopefully we can get one together, I guess, is where the conversation. Yeah. But, you know. I don't know if you can even answer this question, given your history. Um, but do you think there is a, do you think your message as a head coach is different from DeBerg's message as a head coach, from somebody else's message as a head coach? How different is what you are going to want from this team from what they're used to doing? Well, I think it's different, but it's it's still common in the fact that they, you know, Bill Foley wants a winner. He wants a championship and he's put pouring it all in to get that. So that part of the message will be there, but that's the end message. You know, there's the process along the way. And I think that's where coaches differ, um, you know, for what they want to build from day one. I, I mean, we talked about building our game in Boston all the time. Build your game, build your game. You got 82 chances then in the playoffs, you know, so that you're, you're at, you're building your game. So at the right time of the year, it's where it needs to be. So that's how I've always messaged. Um, I'm not sure about Pete that way. Uh, he's had success in the league. So is, is Gerard before that. So I think they're all great coaches that, um, and, 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 and you can see that they got jobs quickly as well. Right. So, yeah. Um, so my job is to identify what the message, how the message needs to be sent to the players, what resonates with them, and and stick to to our beliefs of what I said earlier. Let's build this thing one game at a time, um, you know, and 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 then stick to your core values. And that's where things made different for us. It's always been team accountability. If if you can't hold each other accountable to a standard, then we're gonna have a tough time. So that's that'll be how we'll start out here. And then we'll go from there. So you, 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 you talked about sometimes you could be blunt. Uh, and as soon as you said the word blunt, I could only think of one person, and that's Killer, Brian Kilray. Um, when you're behind the bench, do you hear Brian Kilray coming out of your mouth? Yeah. I mean, Killer was a great coach for us in Ottawa. He made me a better player. Uh, you become a better person when you're around Brian, and, and you appreciate him more when you leave. And I'll say this, I played for Daryl Sutter, won a championship in the IHL in 1990. Daryl is also quite blunt <laughs> with a capital B. Uh, and I learned from him as well, probably appreciated him too a lot more as I left. So you take from those, from, from you know, from what you had success with, right? And both those teams were very successful. So I believe in, in, in how they did things. Now, as generations change, again, how you deliver that message is something I have to learn and get it right. Uh, I think we did get it right a lot in Boston, but they disagreed at the end. So I have to respect what they have to say and, and try to and, and sort of balance the two and still get the message across, but maybe find a um, you know a calmer way or a smoother way to, to deliver it. How much how much of your your job is strategy versus psychology? Uh, I think that depends on the individual, John. I'd like to be an X's and O guy. I love, love the game that way. Uh, psychology is so, so important also that that's always on the table. One thing I think you can kick the, the uh, strategy over to your assistants if you really want to, that's, that's one area. So you should never, you know, you never should cheat on psychology, but I always gravitate towards the strategy because when I started out, I was by myself. So 
I had to do a lot of that work and it sort of doesn't leave you once you start that way. It's, it's, those are tough habits to break. But that's, again, as, as you go, when you asked that question earlier, what do you learn from your first job to your second and third? There's a great example of how you balance those two. <clears throat> I'm just curious, too, in, in that time after the Washington disappointment, did you ever think you'd never get back? Uh, I wouldn't say never. Uh, I didn't overthink it because I thought I was still young. Um, I looked at the positives in Washington. Uh, I mean, I took over a team that missed the playoffs. We made the playoffs, probably could have beat Tampa Bay. So I was trying to think of the good things that we did, uh, not always the negatives. So you, you hold on to some of those and then, okay, what can you do better? That's how I looked at it. So did I think it would happen 15 years later, two years later? That's the part you right. just never know. It started to look like it wouldn't happen, to be honest with you. That might be, hey, I'm going to be a good American League coach, be really good at what I do, develop players. But uh, all of a sudden, things start happening for you, and, and here we are. So I don't know what the how I would describe that exactly, other than, as I said earlier, if I was ever going to get a chance again, I was damn well going to be ready. And, and I think I, I met that goal in Boston. <clears throat> I don't know that you guys are familiar with this, but many years ago, a um, a memo was discovered by somebody and published uh, that was from Punch Imlac in the 1960s. Oh yeah, the letter, um, the letter, the letter, yeah, of, to the players of what to like when the season ended. He sent this letter out and said, "These are the things I want you to do during the off season." And of course, um, I, I won't go into all the specifics of it, but uh, you now. <clears throat> This team disbanded, essentially, not knowing who their coach was going to be. And now you come in while, as you said, players are scattered all over the place. Would you, under normal circumstances during the offseason, deliver some kind of generic message to all of your players? I know you, you would meet with individual players at the end of a season. The GM or the president of the team would absolutely do that. But what did you? how do you handle coming in in the middle of the summer? Well, what I do typically is that you would reach out during the summer, probably midway point to a lot of your guys. Nowadays with text, it's so much easier, right? The guys don't even check their phones out. The sure. Time. Always connect that way. Mm -hmm. But the messaging for me, when I did talk to all, every one of the players, I felt it was important to, to hear a voice uh, because, because of the newness of the situation. And, and we talked about how to get back to, to where Vegas was expected to be. And I think to a man, they all feel like they're disappointed how last year ended. A lot of different reasons why. And so they have a bit of the chip on their shoulder. So that's some of the messaging I got from them more than they got anything from me. So I thought that was great to hear that they're, they're ready to go and, and, and want to prove that they are still an elite team. So for me, the messaging is, well, then take care of your fitness because if you want to be an elite team, you got to be able to check well, you got to be able to close out hockey games. You got to be the better team in the third period. So those are one of the things that we talked about right away without getting into systems or this and that it's your fitness level. Make sure because as I said, training camp is going to happen quick here. You're down to about 17 days now with the, the way they've negotiated. And with the West Coast travel, you don't have a lot of time after that to, to get going and with some new stuff on the table. So that was the messaging that I had given to the players. By the way, uh, in that letter that Imlac sent, he also said, bring your golf clubs to camp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in Vegas. I don't know about Buffalo, but... <laughs> 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 so, um, so like, how will we, I mean, you're going to be behind the bench and you're going to have John Stevens with you, but how are we going to notice a difference with Eichel and Marshall and Stone and all these guys on a style that did, that they played last year versus what you did, what you will do with for them? Yeah, that's a good question. And 
I didn't uh, overanalyze what, what the previous you know, staff did here. I just thought I want to do what I think is successful and kind of got some uh, backing from the players in terms of that as well, talking to them. So um, how do you, how do you going to envision our team? If you're seeing a team that's relentless and rolling four lines, not relying on two or three players or just the power play, good, solid special teams. And I would think our team defense, uh, John, should, should emulate what the Bruins were, a top five team every year. That is going to be our focus and value and keeping the puck out of the net, yet still creating offense and playing exciting hockey, right? We're still in an entertainment business and we want to make sure the fans come and are proud of their team. So aggressive, aggressive for check. Yes, absolutely. And then, so we want to be that team that, um, again, that I don't know how the Bruins were described to me. I thought we were very professional in our approach, how we played. We were hard to play against and you knew you were in a game when you played the Bruins. That, and that's what I'd like Vegas to look like. <clears throat> Um, you, you, you can't, you, uh, I just warn you, Bruce, you can't look down the bench and say 37 go over the boards. No, no, <laughs> I can't. But, you know, we were, we still have Jack and we have Stevenson and we have Carlson. We're, and Roy, we, we are a team that is solid down the middle, which yeah. I think is really important in the National Hockey League. If you have good center iceman, you're, that's a great place to start. But you're right. You're, I'm going to miss Berge. Uh, Boston's going to miss Berge when it's, I, I don't know if he's going to play or not. Sounds like he might, but you know, he's such a valuable guy to every team. But, um, yeah, you're right. I, I'd love to take him with me. <laughs> uh, as a generic statement, you're, you have a certain level of familiarity with this team, but probably, probably watched a, f- a few games uh, that they played extraneous of playing against the Bruins. And so your, your knowledge of how this team has played and opinions of them would be, I would say, limited. Have you spent time watching tape of last year and, and uh, since you were appointed? And, or will you spend some time analyzing what they were? No, no. I watched all their goals for against, all their power play goals for against and chances. So I've got into some of the, you know, the, the end result stuff. Uh, we're at development camp now. We're getting to know some of the younger players, the future. Um, and then I'll go home and I'll have some time this year to go through specific games. The problem with is there were so many, I got to find games and, and they're, they're actually looking for it or did look for it. And they've put them in where the whole team was playing. And there wasn't right. that many this right. year. I don't want to watch games where it's all guys that are not going to be here now. I prefer to watch when Eichel came and how does he look with stone or how does Stevenson play with, so that the guys that are returning to, to, see my eye test for certain chemistry, but I won't overanalyze that uh, different situations every year. Why guys play a certain way. Sometimes when you're chasing it a little bit late in the year, you become a little more reckless, right? Cause there's more on the line. So I don't want to judge a player on, well, we were out of the playoffs. We had to get in. I had to do this because my partner was hurt. So you got to be a little bit careful with that, but that's what I've watched so far. And I'll watch obviously more games going down the stretch, but that will just be from my own knowledge. I don't think we'll be sitting there judging guys on on a lot of that. Certainly, the f- a few individuals I don't know as well, younger guys, maybe unheralded guys in the league, like a Stevenson. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a really good player that I think a lot of people don't know how good he is. And in a white cloud on defense and hang on defense, these younger guys, watch a little bit more of them individually maybe than the, than the whole structure of the team. Chandler Stevenson's an interesting one because I don't think people realize how fast he is. Right. Uh, again, a, a guy, a pretty underrated guy, I think, in, in the National Hockey League. So um, I, I was trying to figure a way to, to, to ask you this, but when you're in Boston, and not to beat the drum on Boston too much, you know, Bill Belichick's a legend. 
Alex Cora has won a World Series. You know, you you took your team to the Stanley Cup final. The Celtics up and down, but the, the Celtics are always the Celtics. This is a totally different environment, you know, in Vegas. What was your relationship with guys like Belichick and Cora? Did you have one with those guys? Yeah, I got to know Bill a little bit in the cup run. Um, because we had that time off when we beat Carolina, we had 10 days before the cup. So someone suggested you should talk to Bill because Super Bowls, he's been to enough of them. They always have that dead time before what, how he prepared. So I did. He was great. He was unbelievable. Um, great guy to talk to about more about just competition in sports and, and, you know, leadership and how do you, how you, you know, not specific. Well, third, what do you do on third and 10, right? Like right. it's more about just coaching. And I thought he was a great guy and we continued that, you know, not he's got his season. I got mine. We chatted. Alex was more text. Brad Stevens was a guy I got to know there. Uh, Brad was more of a cerebral guy. Did a lot of brought people in to do uh, conferences. Um, and, and so I, I, I would talk to him a little more about that. And then the basketball facility was right beside our facility, right? So right. it was easy to pop over there. I thought it was great. Good camaraderie amongst all the coaches in town. Josh McDaniel's here now. Hopefully I get a chance to, to meet with him uh, and start and, and start some of that as well here. Uh, well, listen, we wish you um, great success in Vegas. I, I know you're still discovering it. There is, um, there's a lot more to it than the casual person understands more places to go. I'm sure McPhee will help you in, in that regard. And um, we wish you great success there. It's yeah, um, yeah. it's a great opportunity for you. And I think you, you understand that you're not going to a team that has had prolonged failure. And that's why the coach is no longer there. You're going to a team that, as you know, has been very good and just kind of stubbed their toe last year. So good luck. Yeah. Thanks. No, I think the expectations are, or high here, and I'd rather be in that market any day. You know, and I, you know what? I'm going to miss the Leafs, the Bruins, and the Leafs, and you know, you're going to miss some of that original six over there, the Bruins and the Habs. That's one thing. Being a, you know, like I said, a hockey nerd. That, but we'll build new uh, rivalries out this way. Well, trust me, uh, trust me. When when you see too many games of Connor McDavid coming down the pipe yeah, in the same yeah, division, be careful what I wish for. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you're, you're going to get it. Uh, congrats on the on the gig. Uh, best of luck, and thanks so much for taking time for us today, Bruce. We appreciate right. it. Thanks for having me, fellas. Appreciate it. Bruce Cassidy, we'll come back after these messages. Our thanks to uh, Bruce Cassidy for uh, joining us. We wish him well in uh, in Vegas. You know, I, I I think, and this is not a knock at anybody who's been there before in, in uh, uh, Gerard Gallant or Pete DeBoer, Um. I, I think that the fans in Vegas will love Bruce Cassidy's um, – his nickname is Butch, by the way um, – his, his candid nature, his ease of discussion. Uh, in many ways, he's a little bit like Paul Maurice, Bob. He, the gift of the gab is there, right, uh, and is happy to communicate. And I think that he will have a uh, – a really good relationship with with the media in Vegas, and with obviously then the fan base. Better have a good relationship with the uh, the owner and the general manager and the president. Oh, too. why? So this is your, you, these these are things now you're learning how to have good relationships with employers. Well, no, but Vegas has not exactly been kind to their head coaches. Uh, if you are looking at what three head coaches in four or five years, five years, yeah, and. This is a team that only missed the playoffs for the first time this year and barely. Okay, let me ask you this because you're a, you're a Golden Knights expert. You're, you're you're you know that's your your team of choice. I'm surprised you're not wearing your favorite sweatshirt tonight. 
Um, you were you surprised that uh, Gallant got fired when he got fired? Yeah, shocked. Were you surprised about DeBoer? No. Yeah. So I I, I agree with you. Uh, the Gallant one surprised a lot of us, and the DeBoer one didn't surprise any of us. No. So I was surprised they hired DeBoer. To tell you the truth. Well, remember, if you recall that rivalry at that point, that was that was the Golden Knights' best rival was the, the, the San Jose Sharks and that famous seven-game series and the, uh, and the, the, the major penalty and the three power play goals and the, the, you know how that uh, changed the whole series. And th- that was you know the, that was a vicious, vicious series, you know and there was that was the famous uh, um, Ryan Reeves Evander Kane war. There was lots of different sub uh, subplots in that whole series, and you you thought that they would never get along. Ever. Well, and I don't, I got nothing against DeBoer. I I don't think I don't know whether he's a bad coach or a good coach, and I certainly don't blame him for the for the Knights missing the playoffs. I think that was a function principally of an incredibly unlucky year injury wise. Over five hundred games, right? Yeah. So. Um, but having said that, you know, the record was what it was after making the playoffs, each of their first, whatever, three seasons, mm-hmm. four seasons, four, then they, they missed the playoffs. So, okay. Fire the coach. Um, we'll see whether Cassidy gets a longer term than either of the first two guys did. Again, again, that it goes back to relationships is because as you mentioned early in the interview with Bruce, um, a long-standing relationship with George McPhee, who hired him for his first head coaching job in Washington decades ago. Well, yeah, he can also fire him too, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Um, quickly, the All-Star game goes uh, tomorrow night, and the Blue Jays will send six representatives, which is absolutely shocking for a team that just fired its manager and has clearly underperformed. And as I told you last week, there actually would only be three Blue Jays that I would I would have sent to the All-Star game. And one of them isn't going, Springer. Yeah. Um, but I Guerrero would go, and I probably would give it to Manoa because he's been so good through the first half of the season. Me one too. of the top three starting pitchers probably in all of the American League. So I can see those guys. No disrespect intended to Kirk or Espinal or the recently added Romano. But none of them would have been on. But but been, I mean, Espinal or Romano or you know, they're, they're fill-ins. They're fill-ins. But still, but still, you know, um, so they're the twenty eighth or 29th or thirtieth guys. I don't see it, but well, t- t- but th- this is the same conversation we have all the time. Take this All Star Game for what it is. You know, it's a participation award. Well, it's it's unwatchable. That's what it is. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, I, I, it's funny. I was talking to friends yesterday about the home run derby. I have no desire to watch the home run derby. Well, it's passe. I liked it's, home run derby in 1963. Oh, that was great. Every <laughs> Saturday uh, afternoon, early afternoon, I think. Yeah. Or, or around noon, maybe. Well, wasn't it before the baseball game of the week? Yeah, probably was, which means it was probably around noon. Eastern. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and most of our audience won't remember that. No, because they're not as old as you. No. What do you mean of me? 
You're well, the you're one older. who said I remember it. You're all you're older than me. So barely. Uh golf yesterday. Oh wow. Um what Cam Smith comes from nowhere, shoots 64 in the final round and uh, wins the British Open or the how Open that Championship. Back, how how about that back nine? Well, birdie, I mean, birdie, the whole, birdie, yeah. Oh, birdie, yeah, the whole way around, he, he was good. But he was three shots back with nine holes to go. Yeah. And McElroy, McElroy didn't play badly, but didn't hit it close enough to the hole and made almost no putts. Well, do you know how many here's a here's a great question because and I I had to do some research to find this. Do you know how many more putts McElroy had than Smith during the tournament? During the tournament? Yeah. Well, I know Smith is one of the best putters in the world, if, if not, not the, the best. Yeah. And and he had a terrible day on Saturday. <laughs> um yeah. uh, 15. No, no, you wrecked it. Nine. Nine more putts. And, and cause well, you've played this course, right? Twice. Played, okay. Um, this is a, you know, this is a course that you win or lose, correct if I'm wrong, around the green. This is, this is a, you, oh, you, no, you can win or lose this course all <laughs> over the place. But when it's as hot and dry as it was, and then, you know, hard pan everywhere and the ball rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls, you end up near the green all the time. Well, yeah, there's those some guys. To that. Would, those guys would. I mean, they're the difference. So the difference is, John. Um, I, I've never played. I was going to say it's the most, but I, I don't know that. I've never played a golf course that is tougher, trickier with the ground game. In other words, every shot you hit, mm-hmm. you have to take into consideration which way the ball will bounce. Right. Pick. Yeah. And that not just the putts. And you have greens that basically you can't spin it on the way they're used to. You can stop it sometimes, but most of the time you're playing, you're playing on the ground. Yeah. And the dilemma for these guys on tour is they never play that way. They're never asked to play that way on the PGA tour. So when they go over there, it's a real difficult, it's really difficult for them. And I don't know whether Cam Smith growing up in Australia played golf courses like St. Andrews. I doubt it. He did say after that it reminded him a a, a few times of home and the hard pan. He talked about how hard the fair, literally like like hard the fairways were and that he was used to that. But his, his putting and his approach to putting, um, gosh, it, it it was phenomenal. Do you, you know, he would stand over the ball and not take any warm-up swings? Uh, I do the same thing. and um, It doesn't it, seem to work for you. And you, you, Exactly. <laughs> so it just doesn't go to show you that uh, if you but, do it, it uh, automatically you get that. But you know who else does that? Uh, the guy who may be the best putter on the tour, Jordan Spieth. Oh, really? I, I guess I, I only noticed it because every time I turned around, Cameron Smith was making another 28-footer or a 15-footer or, gosh, he, he was with the stick. He was just spectacular. Well, just yeah, that, spectacular. that's about as good as you can putt anywhere in the yeah, world. Yeah. But yeah. when you think that uh, McElroy, who actually didn't finish second, he finished third. Right. Um, had it was nine strokes less or seven strokes less in the fairways and nine strokes more on the greens. 
It's fascinating to think that. Uh, I just, uh, that to me is mind blowing when somebody can make a difference like that on the well, green. If you watch, if you watched it unfold, you, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't shocking. You could see it. You could see no. exactly what was happening. Yeah. Rory, Rory did not hit the ball as close to the hole. As he needed to yesterday, as he did in the first three days. That's right. By the way, speaking speaking of Rory, quickly, I know we got to go. A really classy move on Friday afternoon to walk out to the 18th to watch Tiger walk up the fairway for perhaps the last time at St. Andrews in the open. I don't think it'll be the last time, but whatever. At St. Andrews. No, I don't think it'll be the last time. Well, well, but he, in a competitive nature, he won't be competitive eight years from now because that's when the well, he wasn't competitive this year. <laughs> well, I rest my case. So, but well, anyway, it was it was just a, and he, and Tiger actually said he was not emotional until he saw Rory at the side of the fairway applauding. <laughs> well, I think there has become. I think Tiger has changed dramatically uh, with his advanced years and is now a very likable and popular guy on tour. He was not that. Yeah. Previously. Yep. So I'm not, I'm not really that surprised. Uh, we got to get out of here. Well, uh, we hope you enjoyed today's program. If so, come back and uh, find out who we got for you tomorrow. Surprise, for John, surprise. For John Shannon, Bob McCown. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>